We're turning tonight to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. May I add my words of welcome to those of the Reverend Horace as well. Nice to be here again tonight. Nice to see all who have gathered with us in the service as well. Nice to renew fellowship with so many last night. See so many familiar faces again and again tonight. And we thank you for coming along. We trust the Lord will bless us this evening. Tomorrow night we want to look at the theme of building a godly home. And then on Friday night we'll look at help for distressed parents. There are many parents who are distressed over children who have gone wayward. And what do we think of that? How do we deal with that? How do we come to the scriptures with that in mind? So we'll look at that on Friday night in the Lord's will. Tonight's subject is God-fearing fathers. And we're going to read from Genesis chapter 22. And we'll begin our reading there at verse 1. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham. And he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and clave the wood for the burnt offering, and rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship, and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand and the knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. And they came to the place which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there, and laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thy anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thy only hast not withheld thy son, thy only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and Behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. Amen. We'll finish there. We pray the Lord will bless his word to our hearts for Jesus' sake. It's verse 12 that I want to Take us our text tonight, where on this Mount Moriah scene, as Abraham is ready to offer his son, and the Lord speaks to him, calling him twice by his name in verse 11, telling him not to lay his hand upon his son. And then he says at the end of verse 12, For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. So with our Bibles open there, let's seek the Lord together. In a word of prayer, we pray for the Lord's help and the Lord's blessing. Our Heavenly Father, we come before thee tonight.
thankful for thy precious word that we have just read. We thank thee for the word that has given to us, profitable for reproof and for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And Lord, we pray tonight that thou would come and open up our hearts to thy word and open up thy word to our hearts. I pray tonight for the infilling of the Holy Spirit, that I will give help in the preaching of thy word, give help in the hearing of thy word tonight. And Lord, we pray we might not just be hearers of it, but doers of it also. That I will speak to all of our hearts, all who have gathered here. We pray, Lord, for this entire congregation, that I would speak to us tonight, that I would come into our homes and bless our homes in a most remarkable way. That, Lord, we would have homes, as we were singing last night, homes that are built firm upon the Saviour. So we pray for your blessing. We pray, Lord, for thy help tonight. Minister to our hearts, we pray, and bring glory to thy name. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. The story of Abraham really is the story of God's saving grace to a man whose early life was full of pagan idolatry. Although we think of him in terms of being the friend of God and the father of the faithful, for the first 75 years of his life, Abraham lived in spiritual darkness. He had no knowledge of the true God. He had a worldview that was full of idolatry. He was yet in his sins and had no desire after Christ. And if he had been left to himself, he would have continued to live that way. And he would have died as a man who, though a religious man, was not right with God. But in the mercy of God, Abraham was not left to himself. Although the details are not recorded in the Old Testament for us, we are told in Acts chapter 7, in verse 2, that the God of glory appeared to this man. Now that simple but incredibly important statement tells us that there was a time in Abraham's life when God intervened and revealed himself to him. God appeared to Abraham and revealed his glory to him. God met with this man. And Abraham, this idolater, this pagan man, saw the glory of the Lord. His spiritual eyes were opened. His heart was opened, and as a result of that intervention of God in grace, Abraham believed, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. That's the message and the truth of justification. Abraham did not seek God first, rather God sought him, and God saved him from his sins. He called him to himself, and this one-time idolater was converted. He became a very devout follower of the Lord. And as a result of that work of grace in his life, Abraham's life was never the same. He turned from his sin and he began to walk with God. He wasn't a perfect man, but over the course of his godly life, there is ample evidence of spiritual growth, spiritual discernment, and also spiritual wisdom. He was a man of prayer. You read Abraham's life, you'll discover him pleading with God on behalf of others. He was a man who understood the importance of worshipping on the basis of a sacrifice. Almost everywhere he went, he built an altar and he worshipped God. He led his family in that type of worship, conscious of the importance of the shed blood. He was a man who recognised the necessity of separation from the world. When his nephew Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom, 
and eventually moved into that despicable place. Abraham, on the other hand, pitched his tent in the plain of Mamre, and he stayed there, separated from the wickedness of the plain and the cities of the plain. He was also a man of courage. He was willing to engage in battle in order to rescue his loved ones, and he refused to take anything from a pagan king. He was a man who loved to fellowship with God. And he believed the promise of God, even when it seemed that promise would never be fulfilled. He was a man of principle, a man of power, a man of influence, a man of tremendous prominence. In fact, Abraham stands out in scripture as a spiritual giant, a man of God, a man of godly values, a man who lived his life for God's glory. He was also a father. He was a dad. And Genesis 22 verse 12 unmistakably outlines the fact that he was a father who was known in heaven as one who feared God. You see that in the language of that 12th verse. Now I know that thou fearest God. Here's a man known in heaven, known by the Lord, as one who fears God. And that's what I want to focus our thoughts on tonight. But let me make a number of observations before getting really to the heart of this this evening. The truth of fatherhood originates with God himself. There are relationships within the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And as one commentator said, we are in a family, and we're under a father because God himself designed men and women in his likeness and created marriage and the family. Fatherhood is not something that just developed because man thought it would be good to have a father figure in a home. This has been something that has originated with God. One preacher added to that and said, every father is giving a message to his children about God the Father. That's something to think about. It's also important for us to remember that the influence of a father has far-reaching implications upon his children. Fathers set examples. We teach by our words, we teach by our actions, we teach by our reactions to circumstances also. Small children especially, maybe a little different as they grow older, perhaps move out of home, become more independent, but small children especially look up to their father and they think whatever the father does must be right. And you'll see little children copying the way their fathers walk or what their fathers do. Sometimes even how their fathers speak. They learn from us before they learn from anyone else. Sometimes we think a child begins to learn when they go to school. They have been learning a way, way before that. They're watching our example. They're listening to us. They're watching what we do. And therefore a father has tremendous influence either for good or for evil upon his children. That's something we must always bear in mind. Moreover, the world's idea of fatherhood is very far removed from what is presented in Scripture. We live in a society right now that says children don't need fathers. You don't need a father figure in his or her life. In fact, there are books written for children that talk about two mommies. And the father has been obliterated from the scene altogether. There was a study published by the Department of Child, Youth and Family Studies in the University of Nebraska, 
And it noted, it noted that TV content has documented to portray a limited range of gender roles and to frequently depict fathers as incompetent parents. So TV, and studies have been done on this, TV has deliberately set out on programs for children and for adults to give the impression that fathers are stupid, that fathers are incompetent. Another author concluded on a similar study, I think we as a culture have a blind spot when it comes to the role of men in families, men and women both. I don't believe it's a matter of injustice or anyone being victimized, she writes. I think it's a habit. The habit is that men are of secondary importance in the life of a family. Therefore, we all kind of expect men to be secondary. And it's not surprising that attitude plays itself out in many ways in our culture, in media portrayals and in the habits we have as families. The media. The media has sought to push fathers to the side. It does. It portrays fathers in a very poor light. And it leaves the impression that a father is irrelevant in the home. He earns the money, he pays the bills, and that's about it. That's his sum total of his involvement. That, that's not God's order. God's order is for fathers to bring up their children in the fear and nurture and admonition of the Lord. Fathers are not secondary in the home. They're not to be secondary in the home and yet that's how the world presents it. Something more, godly fatherhood is a tremendous blessing. And it's only possible through the gospel. Brings me back really to Genesis 22 here in verse 12. For as I look at Abraham, here I see a dad who knows what it is to walk with God. I see a, a father who knows what it is to live his life primarily for God's glory. And that's ultimately good for his family. That's good for Isaac. That's good for the household. Now I can imagine someone with no gospel background, no knowledge of God's word, coming and reading through the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, coming to Genesis chapter 22, and reading this passage for the first time, and coming to the conclusion that Abraham is a very bad father. After all, he's prepared to take his son out of the home early in the morning without, it seems, telling his wife, travel for three days with two servants, place him on an altar, take a knife in preparation to kill him and offer him as a sacrifice to God. And the worldly man looks at that in absolute horror. How could a father even contemplate such a thing? How would he ever imagine carrying through that kind of instruction? But that would be to view this incident from a purely human perspective. Abraham didn't kill his son. What he did do was display a life that was wholly devoted to God and that was full of the very highest qualities that a man could have, any father could ever possess. These qualities are displayed here in Abraham's life. The best father in the world is not the father who indulges his children's every wish. It is not the father who thinks money can solve every problem. The best father in the world is not the one who imagines that education is the most important thing his children can have. The best father is not the one who gives his children freedom to do whatever they want. 
The best father is not the one who believes that their greatest goal in life is to be prosperous and popular. The best father in the world is the one who loves God more than his wife and family and who obeys God in the hardest of circumstances and who has true faith in Christ as the only saviour of sin. The man who fears God, the father who fears God and seeks to bring up his children in the fear and nurture and admonition of God, that's the best kind of dad. Tomorrow night I want to speak on Psalm 127 on the need to have the Lord build our homes otherwise all our labour will be in vain. But Psalm 127 should be read in connection with Psalm 128. We sang the psalm last night. It too has a very distinct family theme as was pointed out to us as we stood to sing that psalm last evening. How does that psalm open? How does Psalm 128 open? What's the first thing it refers to? Blessed is everyone that feareth the Lord, that walketh in his ways. Blessed is everyone that feareth the Lord, that walketh in his ways. That, that's a key part to being a godly father. And that's a key part, therefore, to being a good father to our children. And that's what Genesis 22 and 12 is all about. God says to Abraham, lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thy anything unto him, for now I know that thou fearest God. I know you fear God. I know you fear God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. It doesn't mean Abraham was afraid of God. It means he had a reverential desire to honour God, to worship him. He walked with God. He had a consciousness of God in his life. Fathers, we need to pray for that. That we will be God-fearing fathers. Because that will be the best thing for our families. And the best thing for the work of God. And the best thing for us as individuals. So let's look at this tonight. There are three aspects to being a God-fearing father that I want to highlight from Genesis chapter 22. First of all, a God-fearing father will love God above all else. A God-fearing father will love God above all else. Genesis 22 opens with God tempting Abraham. The word tempt means a test. He's testing him. And what unfolds in these opening verses constitutes the greatest test this man ever faced. It's true that Abraham had gone through trials before. He had gone through times of testing before. But he never endured anything quite like what unfolds in this chapter. At this point in his life, God is testing his love. Look at verses 1 and 2. The Lord says to him, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. That language is very striking. Take now thy son. You would have thought that would have been enough because Abraham only has one son at this time in regards to his own wife. So when the angel and the Lord speaks to him here, that would have been enough. But then he says, thine only son. And then he adds, 
the name Isaac to that. Take thy son, thine only son, Isaac. And you would have thought that would have been sufficient. Abraham would get the message. It's Isaac he's to take with him. But the Lord doesn't stop there. He says, take thy son, thine only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah. And you'll notice in, in, in our English Bible here that the word, take now thy son, thine only son, whom thou lovest. The second son there, thine only son, Isaac, is actually in italics. The word son is in italics. So it does read this way, take now thy son, thine only Isaac. And Abraham would have understood the significance of that. And then he adds, the one whom thou lovest. And the Lord is indicating to Abraham just how much Isaac meant to this man. The Lord knew. The Lord knew that Isaac was very precious to his father. Isaac was special. This was the son that Abraham and Sarah had longed for. This was the son that had been promised, but he was a long time in coming. This was the son that was born to his parents in their old age. When humanly speaking, they were past the age of having children. This was Abraham's heir. Isaac was the child of God's covenant promise. And Abraham loved him. In fact, his love for Isaac was almost without limit. There's a very special bond here between Abraham and Isaac. What hopes Abraham would have had for his son. What prayers he would have offered for him. What joy he would have felt as he watched this little one grow up into a young man. What joys would have filled Abraham's heart. It was impossible for Abraham to look at Isaac and not be filled with wonder and amazement and gratitude to God. He loved him as much as any father ever loved any son. But God is now commanding him to take this son whom he loves and offer him on Mount Moriah. That was the test. Did Abraham love Isaac more than he loved God? Or was his love for God greater than his love for his son? Where was his heart? Where were his affections truly placed? What meant more to him? Was his profession of love to God just that? And nothing more? Or was he ready as a father to lay everything, including his son, on the altar for God? Genesis 22 verse 1 finishes with that challenging command to take his son. The very next verse opens with Abraham's response. He is ready to take his son. Verse 3, Abraham rose up early in the morning. And saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and claved the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went on to the place of which God had told him. He was ready to offer his son. Because Abraham loved the Lord more than he loved his most dearly cherished son Isaac. 
He loved the Lord more. That's the mark of a God-fearing father. There's a New Testament parallel to this. The words of Christ in Matthew 10, verse 37, where the Savior said, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now that verse is not teaching that we should hate our parents or hate our children. The child of God ought to be the most loving person. Christianity ought to be seen in our homes and in our relationships with each other. But what Christ is emphasizing there is that our love for God ought to be greater. Greater than for our children, greater than for our parents, greater than for our wives, greater for anything else we have in this world. What is the first great commandment? It is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and all thy soul, and all thy mind, with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. We are to have no other gods before him, not even our children. There's a danger, a danger of making idols out of our families. A danger of putting our children before God. The danger of loving them more than we love Christ. The danger of thinking more of them than we do of the one who gave them to us. Remember Psalm 127? Children are a gift from God. Yet sometimes we love the gift more than we love the giver. Perhaps Eli was guilty of that. If you turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 2, it's a very sad portion of scripture. 1 Samuel chapter 2, Samuel is born, his mother has prayed for him, we know that from chapter 1, the Lord answers Hannah's prayer. And then chapter 2 and chapter 3 were given an insight into things in the nation at that particular time. And Eli is the high priest, he has two sons who are not walking with God, anything but that. And in verse 27 of chapter 2 we read, There came a man of God unto Eli, and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Did I plainly appear unto the house of thy father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? And did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon mine altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? And did I give unto the house of thy father all the offerings made by fire of the children of Israel? Wherefore, kick ye at my sacrifice, and at mine offering, which I have commanded in my habitation, and honourest thy sons above me, to make yourselves fat with the chiefest of all the offerings of Israel, my people. Now, Eli wasn't guilty of the same sins that his sons were guilty of. But he did not restrain them as he ought to have. And here he's charged with honouring his sons above God. It is possible for us to do that. We have children only because God in his sovereignty has been pleased to give them to us. Therefore it's wrong for us to love the gift more than to love the giver. We must take heed to our hearts. Remember Peter, I'll not turn to this, but in John chapter 21, 
Christ is by the shore. It's post-resurrection. Peter has denied knowing Christ when he stood outside Pilate's hall and warmed himself by the fire. Three times he denied he knew the Lord with oaths and curses. Peter. Peter. And now Christ has met with his disciples along the shore. They've been out fishing. And they come to the shore and Christ has a fire lit. There's food for them. And then he asks Peter three questions. Lovest thou me more than these? Was he saying, do you love me more than you love these other disciples? Do you love me more than these boats? Do you love me more than your nets and your fishing? Do you love me more than these things? But lovest thou me? And Father, that's, that's a question we need to ask ourselves tonight. Do we love God more than anything else? It's easy for our love for God to fade and to decline. It's easy for us to lose our first love. It's easy for us to allow other things to come between our hearts and the Saviour, to claim the love that we ought to have for him. It's easy for that to happen and for us to set our love on something else. It may be our wives. It may be our children. It may be our jobs. It may be our wealth. It may be our politics. It may be our free time. It may be our interests. It may be ourselves. Whatever it is, it becomes an idol in our hearts and we become guilty of idolatry. Abraham passes this test of love. He kept his eye upon the Lord. He remembered all of the Lord's love to him. He lives by faith. He puts things in their proper perspective. He loves God first because God first loved him. So let me say to the fathers here tonight, let us pray. Let us all pray for a supreme love for Christ. That would be the best thing we can do in our homes. Is to honour God as God would be honoured. To love him as he would be loved. That will be a far greater benefit to our families, far greater benefit to our wives and to our children than we may realize. To love God. To serve him. What, is, what does that look like, loving God? What does that look like in our lives, in our homes, with our wives, with our children, to put God first? It means we, we, we give time to his word. And therefore we guide our families according to his word. It means we live for his glory. It means we seek to do his will. We seek to worship him. We seek to lead our families in the worship of God. We seek to appoint our children to Christ. We seek to nourish and cherish our families in the things of God. If we are loving Christ as we should, then our home will be centered on Christ. And that's the greatest thing we could do for our homes. The greatest thing we could do for our families. A God-fearing father will love God above all else. Notice with me secondly here that a God-fearing father will trust God in all circumstances. He will trust God in all circumstances. This was not only a test of Abraham's love, it was a test of Abraham's faith. Back in Genesis chapter 12, God had promised Abraham a son. 
And with that promise he had said, I will make of thee a great nation. And then he adds to that and says, I will bless thee and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. That promise that God gave in Genesis 12 is reiterated in Genesis 17. And Abraham understood the significance of those words. Isaac was the son of of the promise. There's a messianic dimension of course to this. Because through him the redeemer would come. Christ the Lord. And as a result of Christ's person and Christ's work. Spiritual blessings would flow to the uttermost parts of the world. Abraham believed that. He had already shown himself to be a man of faith in so many ways. He had believed to the saving of his soul. He believed the promise concerning a son. He believed that son would be born. Even though he and his wife were past the age for having children. He had, he had walked by faith. This was the man, remember, who went out at the call of God. Not knowing where he was going. But trusting God to guide his every step. Now his faith is being severely tested. Has God just told this man? To take the son of promise to a mountain in Moriah and put him to death? Has God just commanded him to offer this young man that was so significant in the promises of God, in the purposes of God, has God just told him to put him on an altar? What was Abraham to think of that? What, what was this man going to do having heard this word from God? Well, he willingly trusted God. He willingly trusted God. He doesn't question God's wisdom. He doesn't argue with God's word. He doesn't doubt God's plan. He doesn't quibble over God's ways. Rather, every step he takes towards Moriah with Isaac by his side is a step of implicit trust that God would provide and God would display his power. You know, the evidence of his trust is seen in three ways here. Number one, it's seen in the fact he rose early in the morning. We find that in verse 3, Abraham rose up early in the morning. That doesn't mean he just couldn't sleep that night. That doesn't mean he tossed and turned and thought, well, I might as well get up and start this journey. The rising early in the morning was indicative of his earnestness. His earnestness to do the will of God. His earnestness to trust God. And then look at verse 5. He says to his young men, as they come to Mount Moriah, he sees the place and God indicates to him, this is the mount. And Abraham says in verse 5 to the young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. Notice the language he says. I and the lad will go and worship and come again to you. He believed. He believed he would come back with Isaac. And then look at verses 6 to 8. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son. He took the fire in his hand and a knife and they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father. And he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. You can write over those verses, over that whole section of this chapter, one word, faith. Faith. 
unwavering, unashamed, unquestioning faith. Such was Abraham's faith in God and in the promises that God had given that he trusted God to raise his son from the dead. He believed. He believed the word that God had given to him. He believed that Isaac would come back. Of course, that had never happened before. Someone being raised from the dead. But this man is taking God at his word. He's taking God at his word. The Redeemer must come through this line. And therefore, Abraham steps out on the promise and he trusts God. He trusts God with the future. And he trusts God with his family. My friend, that's the mark of a godly man. It's a man who fears God. He takes God at his word. He takes God at his word. He walks by faith and not by sight. Though he can't see the end from the beginning, his faith is in God. He's trusting God. And I wonder, fathers, where are we in this one? Where are we in this one? Are we trusting God for every step of life's way? Do we reveal faith in God in the hardest times of life? It's easy having faith and it's easy trusting God when things are going well. When there's no sickness in the home. There's no disappointments in the home. No problems, it seems, in the home. It's easy to trust God then. So I, I walk with God. But when that changes and when circumstances change, do our children, do our wives see that we're trusting God? Do they look at us and, and say, well, well, Dad, Dad's not concerned here. He's not concerned to the point he has given up all hope and he's filled with doubts and fears. He's, he's trusting God. Do we trust God in the midst of a cost of living crisis? When there's so much chaos and confusion in the world and people are not sure what is going to happen by the end of the year or into next year, are we, are we trusting God in that? Are we? Do our children hear us talking about the Lord? In the sense that we carry everything to him in prayer because we know we can trust him. When we sing, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to him in prayer. Do our children and our wives look at us and say, well, that's exactly how he lives. Or do we just go to pieces? I've got to be very careful here. My wife's here tonight. And I'm a pessimist. I'm a pessimist. I said a thing in Greenville that I regretted ever saying because one of the other ministers, he was a pessimist too, and he was known in the church for saying the glass was half full. No, half, half full, and, uh, or half empty, whatever way it was. And I said, well, yeah, it's half empty and it's leaking. So I was a real pessimist. And one of the men spoke to me about that afterwards, and I regretted ever saying that, because that was not how we should live. We should live with faith in God, trusting God, trusting God. As for God, his way is perfect. And we're told in Matthew 6 to be careful for nothing. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Let's just turn over to that passage. I, I mentioned that in Greenville because 
That's exactly how I felt. And I remember coming to this passage in Philippians chapter 4 and preaching on this text. Verse 6, Be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And I preached that text at a prayer meeting. And there was a man in the church who did beautiful calligraphy work. And he had a lot of texts around the church building with his calligraphy. And I came out of the prayer meeting and I said to him, Roel, that was his name, Roel, would you do that text for me? And he did. And hangs over our fireplace now at home. Be careful for nothing. doesn't mean we're not careful about things and, and sensible about things and cautious about things. It means don't be overly anxious, sinfully anxious about things. Faith in God. Faith in God. When sickness comes into the home, do we go to the Lord first in prayer? Here's Abraham, this, this man of God, this God-fearing father, and he reveals that godly fear by his faith. His faith in God. What kind of message do we give to our children about trusting God? A God-fearing man will love God above all else. He will trust God in all circumstances. Thirdly, a God-fearing man will obey God at all costs. He will obey God at all costs. Abraham obeyed God in taking his son to the mount. In preparing to slay him. Can you imagine how his heart must have been feeling, how he was thinking as he placed his son upon that altar, upon the wood on the altar? He obeys God. And then when the angel of the Lord speaks to him, when the Saviour speaks to him and says, Abraham, Abraham, lay not thy hand upon thy son, he obeys God again. And he doesn't slay him. Here's a man who walks in obedience with God. The walk to Moriah was a walk of obedience. Every step he took. Not only was it a step of love to God and a step of faith in God, it was a step of obedience to God. That journey to Moriah, those three days that he takes until he sees the place that God has appointed for this, every step he takes is a step of obedience. That's the mark of a godly father. It's better to obey than sacrifice. To obey God in the huge things of life. But to obey God in the small things of life as well. To obey him. Even in the hardest of circumstances. To say as Christ prayed in the garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but thine be done. To seek to know the mind of God. And not just know the mind of God, but do the mind of God. This Mount Moriah was close to Jerusalem, the same region, the same area, the same mount. It was Calvary. And I can't help but think of Christ. As Christ walks to Calvary, he does so in obedience to his Father. Obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. 
And this was the secret. This is the secret to Abraham's godly fear. He looked unto Christ. Abraham's love and faith and obedience brought him to the place of the altar. It's remarkable, I think, when you look at these verses, and you look especially at verses 6 and 7. Abraham takes the wood of the burnt offering, lays it upon Isaac, his son, he takes the fire in his hand, a knife, and they went, both of them together. And Isaac speaks unto Abraham, his father, and said, My father, behold the fire and the wood. Where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Isn't that a remarkable scene? Father and son going up the mountain. What are they talking about? They're talking about the offering. They're talking about the sacrifice. I wonder how many fathers here talk to their children about the sacrifice. How many fathers talk to their sons and daughters about Christ. And then, of course, we know from the verses we read towards the end of our reading tonight that Abraham lifts up his eyes and he sees behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns and Abraham takes the ram and offers him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. Tremendous types of Christ here between Isaac and the ram. But he offers up the ram for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And Isaac's standing there watching this. Abraham and Isaac. And their gaze is fixed upon the sacrifice that's been offered. No, fathers, there's nothing we can do better than to bring our children to understand something of the sacrifice of Christ. The substitutionary work of our Savior. To sit them down with us at night, to make sure they're with us in the Lord's day. To have them in a place where they hear the gospel, Sunday school, children's meetings, youth fellowships our family altar times, the public worship service times, Sunday evening as well as Sunday morning, where they can hear of Christ. Where they can learn of Christ the sacrifice. The language there is striking. He offered him up the ram for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. The ram died as the substitute for Isaac. There's no greater theme, no greater theme to teach our children than of Christ. And I think this summarizes Abraham's life. When he moved from place to place, he built an altar, he offered a sacrifice, he prayed, and now here he is with his son, gazing on this wonderful picture, this wonderful type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And surely that's the desire of every one of us. That our children would grow up. Not just to know about Christ. But to know Christ. To know him as their saviour. It's a sad thing when children grow up in Christian homes. And go away altogether. It breaks parents' hearts. It breaks parents' hearts, Christian parents' hearts, because we know how tragic that is. So let us endeavour with God's grace 
to bring up our children in the fear and nurture and admonition of the Lord. That they would know him. That we would be God-fearing fathers. Maybe you're in the meeting tonight. You're a father. You're thinking to yourself, well, I have failed here. I haven't been leading my family in family worship. I haven't been taking the lead and bringing them to God's house. I haven't been praying for them. I haven't been thinking this way. It doesn't have to go on like that, you know. There is grace. There is grace from the Lord to enable us to be God-fearing fathers. God gives grace. So we come to him and we confess our sin. And we confess our weakness. We confess to him that we have failed. And we may have to go to our families and say the same to them. We haven't been doing family worship. We haven't been coming to the house of God. We haven't been as particular in the things of God as really we should have been. And it's my fault and we should be more effort with this. And we we should look to the Lord for, for more grace. Sometimes we've got to do that. But God gives grace to do that. Christ, not only our Savior from sin, he's the one who helps us. I've been been struck recently, reading through the Psalms in my own morning reading times, at the goodness of God, the grace of God. He hears the prayers of his people. Even at times when it seems he wasn't hearing them, and there seems to be delays and, and answers to prayer, The Lord comes and he gives help. He gives tender mercies and the psalmist rejoices in the goodness of God. And you find that theme over and over again. And it struck me recently just how good is the God we adore. And he's good in our families. And he'll give us help. He'll give us grace. He will enable us to be God-fearing fathers. And God-fearing mothers too. So mothers and wives, pray for your husbands. The congregation, pray for the families of the church. Because as the family goes, so the church goes. So I pray the Lord will speak to our hearts tonight. That we might be God-fearing people. In the very best sense of that. And live for his glory in these days. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts for Jesus' sake.